All right, so welcome to our third session on uh, transforming the analytical mind. Uh, I see we have one more person joining. There's Risa. So I wanted to uh, start by asking about last week's material. I remember I said each time we would kind of check in on the suggestions for practice that I give each time. So uh, last time, after we talked about the path and about using um, the way actions and speech feel in the body, I had suggested that you try practicing with noticing if there's some kind of in, mo in the moment guidance about what is skillful and unskillful um, based on uh, the sense in your body, the direct experience. And I'm curious if anybody has any comments on, on that. I uh, had an experience with something that uh, I usually struggle with, and that's getting off my phone. Um, uh, when I've yeah. been scrolling on it for too long, and maybe there's something, you know, uh, healthier that I want to be doing. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it was the first time that I noticed not just an intellectual thought of like, oh, I should go off my phone soon, but started going into my body and and what's pretty common is like feeling it in the stomach mm -hmm. and so to have that feeling of physical happen for other things and then to happen to have it happen for something that was like recurring for me but I've never had a physical sensation around it was kind of interesting to see nice what kind of feeling was in your stomach if you can remember it was interesting because it wasn't wasn't exactly a constriction it was more like a turn or something like that, like a, like a rotation. And okay. it, it's almost as if it's because I was lying on my bed and it's almost as if it was imitating like a crunch, like to get uh -huh. up, which I didn't really think about until you've just asked now, but that's kind of an interesting observation. I'm not sure if the two are connected. Okay. Interesting. Thanks. That's a great observation. That's a, and that's a very normal activity, right? Is that we're on the, phone or the computer and we might know that you know we've been on Facebook for 45 minutes <laughs> but um, you know we have to kind of check in and see like why where's that feeling coming from how is that thought connected to the to the body when I'm on the computer for a long time I sometimes feel a little bit nauseated so I was interested in your stomach feeling because I don't know there's something about the screen or it's just something in my body starts saying this is not real. Anything else? Other observations? Yeah, Julie. Um, for me, the most common one is that I just stop breathing. My breath stops. So it's pretty straightforward. It can stop in a lot of different fashions. There can be a lot of different patterns to it, but the overarching um, thing is that my breath stops. And this will be at what kinds of instances? Um, when I have, uh, my mind has uh, wandered away from the breath. When I hit on something that's kind of juicy and um, trail it out, uh, you know, thinking about it, um, especially if it's something that's maybe anxiety producing, which is a lot of things. 
um, or worry. I'm a worrier. So, um, so you have a constriction in your breath sometimes when, yeah, yeah or feeling Stop. as if it's stopping. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it won't a, stop for long, but, but it's pretty um, slim. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so when that happens, uh, do you change what you're doing because you realize that's not helping or? I usually turn back to my breath rather than follow. I don't feel right now, I don't have, my practice isn't strong enough right this minute to skillfully investigate. So I usually return to my breath. That seems okay. skillful. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. It's certainly, yeah, just returning to the object. Well, you might be interested to know that we'll be looking at investigation in a couple of classes from now. So <laughs> we'll get a little bit more into that. Um, and actually, since you mentioned uh, more the meditative state, the suggestion for meditation was to work on the uh, shamatha or calming meditation, uh, if that was of interest for you this week. So maybe some of you did that too. And any comments on that or on the uh, working with the body are, are welcome. Yeah, Elisa. Uh, yeah, so I was working on um, you know, the calming, and this morning, um, pretty much the whole time that I was sitting, there was somebody doing some yard work outside, and so it was really interesting, because I don't really know, I mean, I'm very sensitive to loud noises, and this was really annoying, and, and um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't have many, many years of practice to kind of know how to, how to deal with that. I know to just, you know, like try to focus on my own body, but I was also, what I was kind of trying was just to be um, spreading ease despite the existence of that noise. That can work. Yeah. Yeah. It's external conditions um, do affect shamatha meditation more than mindfulness meditation. I mean, mindfulness meditation you can do in any conditions, right? The point is just to know what's going on. Um, calming meditation has a little bit more requirements in terms of uh, conditions. If you want to go a long way with it, you can, but kind of at basic level, it's not too bad uh, if there's even some distraction. But uh, what you did sounds good. It was essentially counteracting, you know, putting up something that counteracts the um, possible uh, introduction of a hindrance, right? If one gets annoyed about the sound, that's the hindrance of ill will. And any of the five hindrances uh, stop concentration from developing. So um, that was the right place to work, is to make sure that the mind doesn't fall into that hindrance. So it seems very skillful to me. Um, yeah, it doesn't mean you reach the first jhana or anything, but it's... <laughs> It's really good work, actually, to, especially since you were doing it kind of intuitively to just make sure that you guarded your mind. That's actually really important. Cool. All right. Um, so last time we talked about um, the path. We talked about it as training in sila and samadhi and panya. So in uh, that's the Pali for ethical conduct, for mental training and meditation, and wisdom. And 
um, you know, it's satisfying for the analytical mind to have kind of a, a map of how things go and a picture. Um, but in the end, the map isn't quite enough. We have to actually walk that path. So um, today, I want to talk about some of the key factors that nourish the development of the path. Uh, in addition to our skillful analytical thinking, we need some, some other factors in order to help mature the, uh, the analytical mind. And these include the heart qualities, which we'll talk about a little bit, as well as also some skillful kinds of thought. Um, and even if you've been practicing for a while and have heard of some of these qualities I'm going to talk about today, you may find that there are, you may see new aspects of them or understand a different way that they fit into the bigger picture. So, um, so let's see, let's see what there is to explore. First of all, um, I wanted to share again the verse that I sent by email after the last class. Um, it goes like this. Little thoughts, subtle thoughts, when followed, stir up the heart. Not comprehending the thoughts of the heart, one runs here and there, the mind out of control. But comprehending the thoughts of the heart, one who is ardent, mindful, restrains them. When followed, they stir up the heart, one awakened, lets them go without trace. So it's kind of a sweet little verse. I think we all know about those little thoughts, subtle thoughts <laughs> that stir up the heart. They seem so innocent in the moment, but five minutes later, we realize we've gotten onto something and are thinking about it. And it wasn't, it wasn't even anything major. It was just some little thought that came into the mind, right? And then we picked it up and did something with it. Very common, not, not anything to chastise yourself for. But one thing I like about this is that um, this little passage has this term, the thoughts of the heart. We don't usually think of the heart as having thoughts. Um, and here it's kind of e equated. We think of the mind as having thoughts, um, the heart maybe as having emotions or something. So um, what we see is that this word that's translated here as heart is the word chitta in uh, Pali. And that's the heart-mind. It's something that is not actually um, differentiated very much between the rational side and the emotional side, which is what we do in the West. So in, in the Buddhist conception of the mind, uh, there isn't such a clear difference. Uh, I would say instead, what's emphasized in, more in the Buddhist teachings um, is that uh, the chitta could be undeveloped or immature, in which case it has thoughts that are self-centered, discursive, uh, a lot of just rambling stuff that's all just kind of related to itself. And it also has emotions that are the reactive emotions, the hindrances and other sorts of such things that stir up the heart, first of all, but, you know, are kind of also kind of self-focused. Most of the hindrances are essentially self-focused, what I want, what I don't want, you know, these kinds of things, assertions of who I am and how I need to be in the world and all these other things. Um, and so that's, that's all kind of put in one category of a, a chitta that, you know, still, still has a bunch of extra stuff in it. 
And then through development of the, of the path and the practices that, that we're talking about in this series, uh, the citta becomes more developed, more mature. And that heart-mind, again, sort of a unit together, has in it uh, mature emotions, which are usually the Brahma-viharas, um, and, and that's a Pali term for the, uh, the four mature emotions, which are goodwill or loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Those are considered kind of the, mm, the responses of the, the emotional responses of the mature heart. And that is also there alongside, um, you know, useful and skillful thoughts that are discerning, that are um, helpful, that are efficient, you know, the kinds of thoughts that, you know, like, for example, if, if any of you have done retreat, um, you don't completely stop thinking. I mean, sometimes you do, which is nice, but um, you don't always. And But the thoughts that happen on retreat uh, tend to be kind of, I call them efficient. You know, you have the thoughts that are useful. You remember when your interview is, you get to the food line and you, you know, uh, discern when the right time is to step forward and wash your hands and then go, you know, and you, you notice what the person in front of you is doing so that if they drop the spoon, you pick it up for them, things like that. Um, these are useful thoughts. I mean, they're thoughts, but they're um, useful. <laughs> and in daily life, in the same way, uh, when the mind is kind of more settled and uh, happens to be in a, a, a relatively unhindered state, we can actually work quite efficiently. Uh, you know, you can sit down and uh, write a, uh, an article that you need to write for work. You can um, go onto the web and look up the information you need to look up for something, um, and you don't get distracted and do anything else, and you find it. Or you can make a phone call and just uh, talk to the person on the other end and arrange something that you need to do, and then you hang up and you're done, and the next thing, it's clean. So the mind functions with uh, emotions and thoughts that are um, relevant for the moment and don't leave a lot of trace when the chitta is in a balanced state. So I'd say that's kind of the distinction that's made and not so much this concern about is it thought, is it emotion, uh, can we use the, the rational mind to control the passions, you know, these kinds of um, ideas that are, you know, maybe uh, that are part of a different model of the mind. Does that make sense? I'm trying to kind of yeah, convey how it's, yeah, how it works in Buddhism. So, um, Julie, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. This is a really interesting um, part of the teachings to me. And the, um, the, there are several other traditions where the heart and mind aren't separated. So to understand in the Buddhist, which I know is very varied, there are many Buddhist uh, lineages, teachings, but it, on the whole is the heart-mind, the citta, is it um, considered to be the same and not separated out? I mean, that's what you just said. I just kind of want to confirm it because I find it an important teaching. Yeah, okay. Um... So just since you mentioned multiple versions of Buddhism, which is very, which is true, it's a long tradition and has all sorts of branches. So just to be clear, uh, I teach from the early Buddhist tradition for the most part, which is um, 
part of the Theravadan strand, but it's a sort of a subset of it that's concerned particularly with the early Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon. Um, and yeah, I would say that there, there are words uh, in Pali for thought, you know, words like vitaka um, and for logic. So those, those functions are understood as, you know, as distinct things. Um, interestingly, there isn't really a word for emotion. Uh, that word is kind of subsumed into chitta. Um, so I use that to say that, you know, that there isn't this hard and fast split between the two. You wouldn't draw like, like for instance, I've seen pictures in Western psychology that have two circles that overlap, you know, one of these kind of pictures and one is like rational and one is emotional. And then, you know, in the overlap region, there's something, you know, some wisdom or something like that. Um, you wouldn't really see a picture like that. Uh, it, it never really occurred to the ancient Indians to divide the mind that way. It's just a different way of dividing the pie. Uh, they do recognize a rational thought, partly because, and this was the foundation you know, that I talked about in the beginning of this course, partly because the, the thinking, rational, logical, linear part of the mind does get let go um, in awakening. So, you know, the conceptual mind is not the only thing. Uh, but, um, so they, it makes sense that that gets singled out as a function of mind uh, in order to contrast it from what happens in awakening. But emotions are kind of, you know, immature or mature. They're kind of flavoring the mind all along in different ways. They're not separated out as something distinct that needs to be dealt with in the practice. So philosophically, they don't have as strong of a place. I think that's the best I can do without. Thank you. That was really helpful. Color or such, or even a Western psychologist. So does that help? Yes. Thank you. It did. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, good. So, with that in mind, I want to talk about um, goodwill or loving kindness, the first of the Brahma Viharas, as a very key nourishment. Um, so I'll just say maybe parenthetically mindfulness is an excellent nourishment and that was a sort of implied in that uh, verse that I quoted. Um, but then I want to go on to, to metta, um, loving kindness or goodwill, as really a, a fundamental nourishment for, especially if you have a chitta that favors an analytical approach. And even if you don't, uh, it's still very important, but especially for for the analytical types, this is going to need to be developed as an additional part of the practice in order to support the, the full development of the mind. Um, and of course, the other three Brahmaviharas are needed also, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity, but I uh, will really focus on metta today. So there are a lot of different ways to talk about and practice um, metta, and I'm can I use that word metta? So that's for goodwill. Uh, I'm guessing that some of you at least um, have encountered metta practice in the form of things like saying phrases of goodwill, focusing on the self, the benefactor, um, a good friend, a neutral person and a difficult person, you know, these kinds of, and, and you say phrases about safety and about happiness and health and so forth. Um, so I want to, focus then on a, and, and that's all fine, uh, but I want to focus on a different aspect of metta that um, uh, I subsume under metta at least. Not all teachers do, but some do. 
and myself included, which is that metta is related to the attitude with which we are mindful. Uh, so there is just being mindful of paying attention uh, to things, but you know, paying attention to things is a little bit kind of a neutral quality. And mindfulness is really a special, more wholesome quality than that in the mind. And there are ways that we can pay attention or be mindful that are, mm, you know, flavored in certain ways by the rest of the stuff going on in the mind. Like, just as a simple example, if you're really busy and you're trying to pay attention at the same time, you might be paying attention in a little bit of a, a hurried or impatient manner. Like, all right, all right, I'll just pay attention to this while I'm doing this, just get this done. So it's it's kind of mindfulness, but it's it's got this push to it because you're in a hurry and you're busy. So it's flavoring the way you're paying attention. So I want to talk about um, this attitude with which we are mindful, which is a really important thing to become aware of. And um, the way that uh, is most effective for cultivating the mind, for being um, yeah, for, for cultivating the path is to know in a way that is open, that is friendly, if you will, maybe a little bit even innocent, if I can use that word, you know, uh, just willing to see things as they are. Easier said than done sometimes, but that's the aim. That's what mindfulness actually, um, that's the, the intention behind it. So um, we have a sense then with mindfulness that it's very inclusive that everything belongs. Um, we don't have a sense that something that is actually arising in experience, oh, that shouldn't be arising. That's not part of mindfulness. We would just you know, take what's arising as what's arising. Uh, so I call this a stance that is related to metta um, because metta is uh, all inclusive. It, it relates in the, in the realm of beings. It relates to having goodwill toward any being. And that's challenging. I know we all have beings where we don't have that immediate feeling about them of openness and acceptance and, you know, willingness to meet and connect. Uh, I get that. And in the same way, there are experiences. It doesn't have to be beings. There are experiences in the mind where we're not so open and accepting and willing to connect with them. So that same stance, um, I'm going to call having an attitude of metta during our mindfulness. Um, so it's an attitude of inclusion and of non-separation. And it keeps the mindful observer, we do need to create some kind of an observer of experience, artificial distinction, but it's a good way to start. It keeps that observer from being detached and aloof from experience. So metta doesn't create any barriers. It does, um, the mindfulness is observing something so that we're not all entangled with it. But the way that we're disentangled is not to shut it out or, you know, pretend that it's not there or to pretend that it's not part of us or not part of our experience. We have a connected attitude. And so that's what I'm calling an aspect of metta. Um, so consciously adopting this attitude of metta can correct um, other uh, things that have come into our mindfulness. So that's why I'm drawing it forward. I'm now going to talk about three different aspects of this um, inclusive stance to mindfulness that are important for nourishing mindfulness to be as um, kind of clear as it can be. So the first 
um, the first habitual or personality pattern that we might bring to the way that we're aware, if we have an aversive temperament, which by the way, a lot of analytical types do, um, we will be mindful in a way that is a little bit judgmental or pushing away, right? So um, we have a way of being mindful, but you know, we're, we're, we, we, we know something shouldn't be there. Oh, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to focus on my breath. There's desire, no, 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 that's not good. There's a little bit of aversion. No, 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 we don't want that one either. Um, and so, you know, it's like, okay, but is that really, um, is that really an open and inclusive attitude? We're actually generating a little bit of aversion there. So having this sense, um, I'm gonna call this metta as warm acceptance. So you may not like that, but a warm acceptance of what's arising, not because everything is um, beautiful and we should follow everything, of course not. But if it's already arisen, it's there. <laughs> so you have to accept that it has arisen. Uh, and so a warm acceptance of reality is an aspect of metta that's very useful to have. Second kind of bias that we can bring to our awareness is that people who are self-critical or not self-confident or who have a lot of doubt can have a subtle way of not taking their experience or their practice very seriously. And this is not easy to see because doubt kind of blocks this. But at some level, you don't deeply care for your own well-being, for your, the quality of your own inner life. So in this case, um, metta feels like treating your experience with complete respect. You know, what is happening for you is valuable, is just what's happening. And it's come about just through the usual conditions of the universe. And you can meet it. If you meet it with mindfulness, you are doing the best that you can for your inner experience of you know, being there for your experience. And that matters. Your inner experience matters. The quality of your inner life matters. This is metta as respect. So actually having a sense of respect in your practice. Wow, I'm doing mindfulness practice. That's a really good thing. Try it out. Um, sometimes this attitude is very hard to see. And bringing in this deliberate respect of yourself, you can, you, know, you, can use, you can use the self if you want. In this case, it's okay. Or just of your practice um, can really uh, shift things uh, in subtle ways that you didn't know you were hanging up your own mindfulness. And then so finally, the, Julie, did you have a question? Um, no, I'm so, Oh, I thought I was muted. Okay. I'm really excited about this because this is exactly why I took this class, discovering this underlying quality, uh, all despite years of practice of blame. And I never would have gotten to lost of respect, but there's kind of a self dissing in it. Yeah. And these are subtle elements that have been coming up and that's why i think i was drawn to the class so i'm just excited thank you <laughs> okay great <laughs> yeah um this is this is something that happens in practice is that even after a long period of practice we might find something quite fundamental that's going on that we just didn't know was there and it's fine that's actually a sign that the practice is working over time it will eventually reveal all of that stuff but we can be humble about no matter how many years we've practiced, there's more we haven't seen about our mind. So the third um, 
there's only three. So the third of the three areas I want to mention of little uh, offness in the mindfulness that you might check for is um, if we have a little subtle sense of conceit or self-importance or attachment to a goal. That's another thing analytical people have is an attachment to a goal. And in that case, uh, we have a little bit of push behind the mindfulness. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, that kind of feeling. And so then metta, including this, what I'm calling this stance of metta, has an effect of softening that pushy feeling, um, including everything, uh, kind of reduces our puffed up stance. <laughs> and it's actually a relief. You know, when we are able to let go of a sense of importance or, or goal seeking, it actually feels relieving. Um, so, you know, it may be that in your life, like in your job, for example, there's a lot of push for that. And so it's just a habit that you have. And then you do the same thing down in meditation, um, but you don't need to. And so um, uh, you can recognize that when you're sitting quietly in meditation, you have the relief of not having to be anything or do anything or prove anything. And so um, this is metta as ease. Metta as an attitude of ease about whatever's happening. You don't even have to do anything about whatever's happening. You just have to be aware of it. So we have metta as warm acceptance, uh, metta as respect, and metta as ease in our practice. Um, and just you can just check now and then if these any of these um, slightly off attitudes have crept in to the way that you're being mindful. And it's a great nourishment for the path, this aspect of metta as well as any regular metta practice you do toward uh, goodwill for beings. I, I certainly encourage doing that also. Are there any questions at this point? Because I was going to have us do a guided meditation, um, but I want to make sure people are settled before that. Okay. Very good. So, um, please find a comfortable posture. You'll be able to sit in for a little while. And allow yourself to gently close the eyes if that's comfortable for you. Maybe take a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. On the out-breath, allow the body to relax. Tuning in to how the body feels from the inside. Maybe feeling into the place where you're sitting. The contact of the seat with the cushion or the chair. The legs or the feet against the floor. Just gently softening, so softening the muscles of the face, 
around the eyes, the forehead, around the mouth. Softening the eyes in the eye sockets. Down through the throat and the shoulders, letting the shoulder blades slide down the back. Down through the arms and the hands. into the chest area, softening the heart, the lungs, the rib cage. Maybe feeling the breath passing through the chest area. And down through the belly, letting that be soft. The hip joints, thighs. Achilles, ankle joints, and all the way to the feet. Just inviting ease throughout the body. Gently bringing the attention to the sensations of the breathing. However it is right now is fine. Just noticing. can imagine being like a child on the beach watching the waves coming in and going out. Very open-minded approach to how is the breath right now? What is this thing called breath? Feeling those direct physical sensations kind of innocently, as if you haven't ever really felt that before. 
You might notice which part of the breath is the easiest, the clearest to feel. Having observed it a bit, you might notice it the most strongly in the nostrils or in the nasal passages through the back of the throat, or maybe in the chest or the belly. Just at this moment, for this time, wherever it feels the clearest, you can just let the attention settle there, resting with these simple sensations, knowing that you're, that you're aware, knowing that you're mindful. And as you continue to be mindful of the sensations of the breath and, and to know that you know, know that you're mindful, you can turn your attention toward the stance of the mind. How is it that you're being mindful? Meaning, in, in what way is there a, a flavor? And in particular, I'll offer a little guidance around honing the, the stance of the mind. So consider that you're, at this time, it's a short guided meditation. So we'll, we'll take on this task for real. Take seriously that you're meditating right now or the greater aim of maybe happiness or peace, whatever your greater aim is. And that's a really valuable aim. It's worth doing, that's why you're doing it. So respect this work. can feel happy that any effort in that direction is good.
sitting here, meditating on the breath, we nonetheless accept everything that comes in a warm way. If it's distraction or something that you know to be a hindrance, that's okay. That's what arose. So we just go back to the breath. Favoring the breath, but not concerned that not everything is the breath. So a warm acceptance of how it is right now in this mind and body. And there's nothing else that needs to happen right now. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. There's no one you need to be. You can feel the relief of just doing this one simple thing for now. Simple ease of mindfulness of breathing. And if it seems useful, you can check back into other areas of the body, see if any tension has crept in, in the shoulders or the belly or the legs. And just invite ease, warmly accept if there's any change in the rest of the body. And then again, favor the, the breath, an attitude of, of respect, 
warm acceptance and ease. Mindfulness with an attitude of metta. So gently returning to the to the group. So did anyone notice any um, shifts in their attitude through opening to those different dimensions? Lisa. I was just switching to gallery view. Good. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anyone switch their view? I, I bet I could say something. Um, I, um, so what, uh, what I notice most strongly, uh, especially in a guided meditation in a class, is that my mind is commenting continually on the experience and even like framing what I would say about it afterwards in a small group or whatever, you know, how, we do, how I would describe it. And so, but I was just um, trying to pay attention to just now was, okay, well, that's just something that's arising. Right. But just keep shifting that, you know, just to keep sort of embracing that, those thoughts in that quality, even that bigger quality. Yep, that's great. Yeah, just bringing that into what you're aware of. Um, is fine and it's not a distraction anymore because it's part of the inclusiveness of the mindfulness. That's great. Okay, so, um, oh Val, were you leaning forward? Why not? Um, this, this, is, uh, uh, this is a hard time in the day for me to meditate, often fall asleep, whatever. And what I liked about that meditation was it, the ease and the warmth just brought a kindness to it 
I mean, I didn't fall asleep, but it also just felt more pleasant, a lot more pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes we've been trained that mindfulness is this very, you know, exact, almost cold uh, scientific awareness of things. That's not usually what, how the instructions are given, but sometimes we can get into that mode or if it's a certain time of day with low energy or whatever. And just, this is why I call these nourishments. So the nourishment of having a little warmth, a little kindness, or a little ease, however you want to flavor it, um, can really help. And it's not, it doesn't mean you're not doing mindfulness anymore. That's a, uh, it's totally fine to have these um, warm, positive qualities in the mind at the same time. They're actually part of the path also. So um, yeah, I'm encouraging uh, appropriately flavoring your mindfulness. Now, if you start getting into, I can only meditate if it's pleasant and I, it's got to be easeful, I'm going to make it easeful or, you know, something, um, then you'll, you'll start to see that, um, you know, that you can feel that that's not a good direction to go in. But I'm just trying to counterbalance some of the ways that we might otherwise be mindful. Okay, Julie. You're, you're muted there. Is there time for another um, comment or question? Um, yeah, yeah. So I found it very valuable and um, was feeling a lot of uh, ease and spaciousness. And then something very difficult arose, a lot of uh, a feeling of terror. And so I was... Um, just being with that. And then there was some loud sounds, which are, I have a lot of sound sensitivities. And I sort of jumped rails and found myself in a place of not being able to access what we just developed. And so I just wanted to bring that up. I don't really need an answer, but I, I found myself without um, capacity right then to return to that um, nourishing place. Yeah, and that can happen. Um, it's, uh, there are things that come and sort of knock the mind out because our level of mindfulness or strength is uh, lower than the stimulus that's coming in. And so just mindfulness practice will tend to eventually raise the strength of that so that more things are kind of below the level that it can handle. But you know, at any time, something like that could come and um, you were aware of it. Um, that does happen. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we could talk about a specific situation if that was useful at some other time, but is that um, helpful for now? Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's very common and not, not anything to worry about, but um, does happen. I was just cranky about it because I was enjoying the other step. Thanks. That's right. That's right. We like the ease. But successful meditation doesn't have to be pleasant. That's not a, the only requirement. So it sounds like it actually went pretty well since you were aware of that whole sequence going on. Um, so I wanted to show a slide. Um, I want to move on to... Um, other nourishments. We've talked about mindfulness itself, about the attitude with which we're mindful. And there are some nourishments that are actually related to um, the, the more cognitive side of the mind. 
Um, so let me show this. Next one, there we go. So these are five factors that assist in wise understanding from a sutta. Um, and they're uh, listed here as virtuous behavior, learning and discussion, that's two of them, uh, calm and insight. So these things are said to be um, nourishments, the factors that assist, I'm gonna call nourishments, of the development of, of wise understanding or right view or wisdom, uh, the, the most fundamental um, factor that uh, kind of precedes the cultivation of the entire path. And if you were to really master all five of these and had cultivated perfect wise understanding, that is, of course, uh, poises the mind for awakening. So um, interestingly, now we talked about virtuous behavior last time as part of the ethical conduct step of the path. And we're gonna to get to common insight uh, later uh, when we talk, talk in other sessions. But I wanted to look at these middle ones of learning and discussion. Uh, isn't it interesting, right? We usually would, would think that um, these kinds of thought-based things, isn't that what we're trying to get rid of in meditation? <laughs> um, but you know, maybe you wouldn't do these during meditation, but this is a wonderful nourishment outside of the cushion that has to do with training the mind to um, think skillfully and to relate to the teachings in a normal uh, mode of consciousness. So um, I want to talk a little bit about this learning and discussion. Of course, uh, in a broad sense, you know what it is. It's what we're doing here. <laughs> you know, you're you're learning about uh, the teachings and or you go to a Dharma talk or you go to a class and the discussion, I'm gonna have you do small groups soon and you've probably done that before. So yeah, and maybe we talk with Dharma friends. Uh, if we go out for coffee with our Dharma friend, we might talk about something. Um, so, you know, these are of course, what is meant here. But in addition, I wanted to bring in learning and discussion as an actual practice, as something, a formal, a more formal practice. Maybe that's how to say it, as opposed to an informal one. So it is possible to uh, study the teachings, develop a relationship with the suttas that is a little bit like maybe even exactly like this direct experience that I've been pointing to uh, in meditation, you know, where we sit and instead of knowing something through the filter of our cognitive mind, um, you know, maybe we don't know what, exactly what totally direct experience is, but we get more direct by going through the body, for example. And it happens that even in um, reading suttas, especially if it involves um, some of the images, imagery in the suttas, but even outside of that, we can have um, experiences, we can filter those experiences through the body and start cultivating a direct relationship with the texts. Um, this is known in many traditions. Uh, this is not something that I'm making up or, um, yeah, is anything that would be uh, foreign to any kind of a wisdom tradition. There's, for example, in Christianity, there's something called Lectio Divina of um, reading scriptures in a certain way. And it's not considered something where you need to have a belief in something or 
um, that you're creating a certain kind of, um, you know, you're, you're letting go of your, your cognitive understanding or your doubt about think, your ability to think about the text. It's not, it's not the case. Um, it's just another mode. And we're going to practice it. So I'm sitting here talking about it, but um, we'll practice that. Um, but I'm curious um, if anyone has uh, encountered this, has done anything like this, where you read text very deliberately. I see a couple people nodding. You might have done it for yourself, um, even if it wasn't Buddhist texts. Maybe you've read poetry uh, very slowly uh, and taken it in and really you know, felt what was being conveyed. Of course, the suttas have a little bit different purpose than that, but it's not, um, it's not so different in that I don't think the texts are just meant to convey information. Uh, the way that they're written doesn't imply that to me. Uh, they, they touch us on multiple levels. We can just read them, of course, as texts, and that's fine. Um, and there are other dimensions of them available that I'm going to attempt to um, to convey a little bit tonight. So in the last part of this class, I guess a little final piece of learning to inject here is that these five form a mini path. Remember we talked just to tie into last week's teachings about the path. We have ethics as virtuous behavior, learning, discussion, and calm are all aspects of mental development and insight is an aspect of wisdom. So if we were to cultivate these five factors completely, which interestingly include learning and discussion, a thinking factor, um, we, would, we would cultivate a complete path. So um, worth noting. Um, I'll stop sharing this now so I can see all of you. Okay, great. So, um, So if we combine this sutta that has the five qualities along with the other things we talked about, mindfulness and metta, um, you start to get a sense, I'm hoping you're starting to get a sense, that there's kind of a um, mandala of skillful qualities, I could call it that, that surround our um, efforts to cultivate the path, whatever practice we're doing, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, um, other kinds of practices that we do, concentration practices, um, they're, if they're flavored by these other supports, um, that ends up creating a kind of a um, mandala, I'll use the word again, a sense that there's a bunch of things that are acting together at the same time. I think I mentioned this a couple of sessions ago where I said, it's not necessarily that the path is linear. You know, you, have, you do right view and then right intention and then right speech, you know, up through the eight, or that you do sila and then samadhi and then panya. It's more like um, a lot of things are coming together from different angles. And uh, that's kind of how I've come to think about the path is that there's this um, collection of skillful things that we cultivate, kind of independence on each other. A little more of this helps us to develop a little more of this, which then helps us develop a little more of this. And together, they all mutually help increase each other. And those things together all support the gradual training of the mind and the training of the heart. I think it's not an accident that the mind is sometimes likened to a knot, <laughs> a complicated knot. Um, 
where and and we know that if we've worked with complicated knots or things that are all tangled up like i don't know a big plate of pasta or something <laughs> i'm pulling images here um you don't exactly start at the beginning and just do this and this and this and this and then it all gets untangled you kind of have to like work at it a little bit here and then work pull on this and then this loosens that a little bit more like that so i, I hope i'm conveying some of the states that are are useful to cultivate in order to nourish this whole path so um all of this and why am i emphasizing this so much it's because the intellect likes to um have a simple solution to things <laughs> um whether it's a silver bullet approach if i just had this i could unravel everything um, but actually we, we need to start to learn to trust that there's some process going on that's a little bit bigger than we can quite get our head around it's it's still helpful to do learning and discussion like i like we're going to try in a moment and, and i've been emphasizing all along but there is actually something that's smarter than us in a sense and as we start to cultivate these other qualities of warmth of um of uh, talking with other people of interacting with texts in a way that's very trusting and open uh, we start to very slowly broaden we don't have to get rid of the intellect but we kind of broaden the, the range of things that we're willing to trust and include as um, factors of our path or even even teachers for us we may have an outer human teacher but these start to become inner teachers for us and i do recommend having an outer human teacher by the way we need uh, some grounding usually um, so anyway, this is just giving you a preview that we, we don't get dumber in this process, but we do get broader uh, and kind of willing to engage more aspects of the mind. So um, are there any questions at this point? Because I want to show you a, a text that we're going to kind of contemplate. So um, actually, I'm going to I'm going to read it first. Um, so maybe uh, just for yourself, um, mentally take kind of a meditation posture. You don't have to go to a chair or anything or a different spot, but just internally um, prepare yourself as if you were going to hear a meditation and open the mind. Remember some of these stances of you know, taking seriously. This is your spiritual practice for the purpose of peace or whatever. And, um, warmly accepting what comes in and having a sense of ease about about the path and then just just listening to this um, which is a an image that's used for one of the concentration states just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from east west north or south and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench steep fill and pervade the lake so there would be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water so too a meditator makes the joy and pleasure born of concentration drench, steep, 
fill and pervade this whole body so that there is no part of this whole body unpervaded by the joy and pleasure born of concentration. So just having a sense of those words um, washing through the mind and body, for those of you who are more visual learners, um, I'll put it up on the screen for you. But you don't have to, you don't have to do that. But this does take in a, through a different part of your mind. If you were reading this in a book, this is what it would look like. So it's maybe useful to uh, let your mind approach the text this way also. And I'll read it again. And again, uh, this time have a sense of what would it be like to have a direct experience of this image or of these words. Just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below, and it had no inflow from east, west, north, or south, and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain, then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake so that there would be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water. So too, a meditator makes the joy and pleasure born of concentration, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this whole body so that there is no part of this whole body unpervaded by the joy and pleasure born of concentration. It's a beautiful image of a, a lake that has no inflow from the sides or from the rain. And there's just, it's somehow just filled with a, a fount of water that comes up from below and spreads itself throughout the lake. This is an image for one of the concentration states. And in the same way, we can take in some of the joy and pleasure. Some of you mentioned feeling that during this last meditation. What would it be like to have that kind of welling up within the body and just flowing and spreading through the body? I think that's the implication is that this is meant to be something we can feel, feel directly. So not every sutta has a, a lovely image like this, but many of them do actually. And even the ones that don't have images, there's a way in which we can take in words using that same kind of attitude to see what impact it has on the mind. And you know, maybe it's maybe it doesn't have much, or maybe you didn't feel anything from that image, and that's totally fine. I wasn't aiming you toward anything in particular but only to try that experience and see, uh, see what it was like. See if it might be something that's interesting or useful in your practice as part of this nourishment. So now there's a, a chance to talk about that with each other. Um, I'm gonna put you into groups of three, I guess. And, um, oh, does anybody, uh, if anybody wants that 
image, uh, I launched that quote, I could put it back up and you could um, take a screenshot of it. Does anybody want that? You don't have to. Somebody wants it. Okay, I'm going to put that back up again. You can, can you send it to us too. I will send it to you. But if you wanted to refer to it during the small groups, that's why I'm doing this. So you can screenshot on your device. All devices have a way to do that. Or you can literally pick up your phone and take a picture of the screen. Um, another way to take a screenshot. Does everyone have it who wants it? I actually can't see all of you, so um, hopefully that was okay. Great. Um, good. So I'm going to put you into small groups. And the thing to talk about is, um, you know, essentially, how was it? <laughs> how was it to um, have a direct experience? What was your experience of feeling into that particular image? And um, you might be interested to see, you know, what range of feelings came up in the groups that you have. So let me do that just a moment. Okay, and you'll have, um, why don't you just make it a discussion and make sure that everybody has a chance to speak. I will check in with you. Uh, it's 8.12 now, and we'll do this for 10 minutes. So you have until 8.22, and I will, um, yeah, I'll see you in a little while. Okay, welcome back. Just about everyone's back. There they are. Okay, so um, is there anything you'd like to share in the larger group about that? I'd love to hear how that was for some of you or anything that came up in your group. Val and then Jane. Jane and I were in the same group. <laughs> I was just saying we, we all uh, related, I think all three of us uh, felt strongly about the water image and felt it, felt an embodiment of it, felt it kind of welling up within us. And yeah, it was almost like a, like a guided meditation in a way. Yeah. Yeah. The suttas have that quality to them. If they're read in that way, they can be like guided meditations. Jane, did you want to add? Yeah, what Valerie said and just um, what I was saying is we're in our minds reading these things and, and getting this not gaining this knowledge, but then with with that stanza, I could feel it just all encompassing in your body and very powerful. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's and we're even reading it in translation, right? <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it, it can go right into the body. And it may be that if we take in some of these images or take things in, even if it's not just images, just the regular texts, a little bit more directly, that becomes more available to the mind. You know, like later, if 
you have some experience that's similar to that, that image might come up um, because it's been taken in more deeply than just something at the cognitive level. Are there other comments? Um, I'm always somehow always surprised what a second or third reading will do and how it transforms the text or more so how we take in the text. And uh, in light of the topic being around the analytical mind, certainly my analytical mind's much more active in the first reading. Mm -hmm. I was sharing with my group how a lot of times I'll sort of instinctually try to break down certain parts and figure out what they mean. And then especially when we create the intention around the second or third part and, and intend on taking in the sutta as a guided meditation or something similar to that, um, it's pretty powerful like what pacing and rhythm does for it. And it sort of aligns you to the same cadence of, of the reading. Mm. It's more than just like an intellectual understanding. It's sort of a, a speed that you're matching it at. Yeah, we can slow down to the pace of the sutta in a sense, or instead of bringing in these um, other ideas of what does this mean? What does this connect to? Which is totally valid, by the way. It's very nice to read things and understand what else they connect to. But there are other ways of just being exactly with that. It's just different ways of using the mind. I think your description was excellent. And especially how maybe if we do it more than once, it, it changes something different will come. Nice. Well, I just wanted to offer that it was, oh, Elisa, did you have something also? No, you were adjusting the volume. It's easy for me to see your finger because you have one of those iPads or something, something where you're, <laughs> it looks like this. So it's always uh, easy to see. Okay, so, um, so we are coming to the end. Um, and I just want to recap that today we were focusing on various nourishments of the path. And um, these include uh, metta and the other heart qualities. Um, both as as mature emotions that we use to relate to other beings and you know, to make our lives go well, but we also focused on metta as an attitude that accompanies mindfulness, if you're willing to stretch your definition of metta to include that. Um, and then also from the sutta that we read, there's uh, virtue. I didn't talk about that uh, deliberately tonight, but... Um, that is a big nourishment of being able to develop the mind is that we just have, you know, we're just generally leading an ethical life and that um, makes meditation go a lot better, as well as learning and discussion, which can be done in many different modes. A basic cognitive mode is fine. And then there's also this possibility of um, a more direct or you can play with it. It's, there are other ways to do it besides what we did tonight, but you know, relating to texts in a, um, a less cognitive way. So um, just as a little preview, you might remember that last session we talked about how once the mind is, has some of these qualities in it, these nourishments and the practices that we're doing, we start to, um, we start to develop we see emerge these things that I was calling Dharma qualities related to wisdom. 
So the mind will start to kind of open into something that's a little bit less um, surface level cognitive thinking and start to have some qualities that are more about discernment, about, um, about wisdom. And the one of those that we'll talk about next time will be maybe two, maybe we'll do two next time, clear comprehension and investigation of states, which are st uh, wisdom states that are named in the text as kind of the part of the cluster that goes with the quality of wisdom. And once you have even the, the things that we've talked about tonight in place a little bit, doesn't have to be super well developed, these other qualities of clear comprehension and investigation can start to arise as um, and, and start to take shape and form in the mind. So then I do have some, like before, I have some recommendations for your practice, and these are always recommendations for if, they, if you want to fit them into your life um, this week. So in, I would suggest trying to pay attention to this attitude with which you are mindful and um, see if it is inclusive, warm, accepting, respectful, some of the qualities that we talked about. You know, does it have this flavor of, of metta to it? And then uh, if it's of interest, you might consider reading a sutta before bed in the evening. And I know some suttas are very long, so it, it could even just be like a little image, like the one that we read tonight, but you could just pick something out of a sutta, some shorter part. Or um, you can choose uh, the verses of the Dhammapada. I just suggested um, the name of that book. If you just um, put it onto Sutta Central, for example, or something else, you'll be able to find it for access to insight. Uh, it's their versions of it online, and those are uh, just simple verses that are nonetheless quite deep. So these are good options for quick things that you can read before bed and just see how that and see what that does for your mind. Again, if it's of interest, and I'll um, send this to you by email also. So um, that was what I had in mind for tonight. I hope we're all nourished by it. And um, I'll just ask if there are any last questions or comments to, to feel completely, or yeah, we have a little, little more time, a minute or two. I just thought it was a great class. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Trudy. And I'll just mention that, that uh, Kim is on PayPal, if anyone would like to offer Donna for the teachings. Well, thank you, Val. Yeah, on the um, Insight Santa Cruz uh, donations page, there's a link to all the, all the teachers, and you can find me among them, if that's of interest, or donate to ISC also. Pratiba. Just want to say thank you, Kim. It's always a pleasure to study and think and meditate with you. Okay, well, then thank, then let me thank all of you because this class doesn't happen unless you come. So I'm delighted that you're all here and this is a lot of fun for me also to go through this and to learn from you how you're relating to it. So I look forward to perhaps seeing many of you next week also. Have a wonderful week. Be well. Wonderful class. Thank you. Thank you, Kim.